Shalom and peace, y'all. Welcome to the Reverend Dan and Rabbi Matt podcast, where two Texas clergy from two different faiths talk about everything from empathy to what would have happened if the Israelites could have walked on water. I'm Rabbi Matt. And I'm Reverend Dan, and this podcast is proof that peace is possible. So I noticed that Matt has a action figure on his desk of Moses, and when I went over to to play with the action figure, I noticed that it is uh, does not have wheels underneath his feet. No. I have a I have a Jesus action figure in my office. Right, and and, and why does why does Jesus he have, has, have wheels? He has wheels because he can so as to enact walking on water. Well, it seems like ice skates would have been better then. Than the wheels. That would that would be fashionable. A seventies Jesus, an eighties Jesus. Um, but why doesn't Moses have wheels underneath? Moses has a staff. His, his, his staff does lots of different things. It uh, it parts the water. We could go back and forth on this one. But so we were talking about why? Uh, what if what if the Israelites would have been able to walk on water and not had to part it? And you know. yeah, I know that would have saved us from the theological. Uh, uh, tension that, uh, of explaining the, the waters closing back in on the Egyptians. Right, right. But it doesn't alleviate the, what we've been dealing with lately in our reading of the Torah in our annual cycle of uh, the, the death of the firstborn. That's oh. the 10th plague, too. So it doesn't alleviate that. But Wheels don't solve that. No. no. I need to get to the real tragedy, though, of uh, what's happening in my household as we check in on some personal things. Uh, this On Friday of this week, we have to get rid of all the Girl Scout cookies. Wow. My daughter, she's nine years old. She's been selling Girl Scout cookies left over right. Uh, and um, she's got to get rid of all the extra ones on Friday. Yeah. And so we're faced with how many of them are we going to buy right. to keep in the freezer, and then they're going to be gone. Wow. Uh, there's a guy in our congregation who recently moved mm-hmm. um, to Louisville, and he would buy Girl Scout cookies from her, and before he even left the church grounds, would mm-hmm. pull a sleeve out and start eating them like Pringles. <laughs> and so we mailed him a case of these cookies that he likes. But the thing is that with Girl Scout cookies, when you order them online and mail them, there's no option for you to say uh, that they came from you. Uh, and so he's just going to get some box randomly and be like, Thank, thank God for right. these like, cookies. Like mana from heaven. <laughs> yes, like mana from heaven. Wow. That's amazing. It is. Well, What's happening in your I, world? You know, we, it's unfortunately we we're having a, a meat dinner this Friday night for Shabbat at Hillel. Otherwise, I would say, well, we'll just buy up all the leftovers as our just Girl Scout cookies are kosher. So. Yes, exactly. And I was going to say, I did the research. And the ABC Baker, which covers this region of Girl Scout cookies, yeah. they're all kosher, including the Thin Mints, which cannot well, be course. said for the other uh, region. I, yeah. I, I you probably won't have a lot of Thin Mints left. That's not probably what you'll have of excess. That's true. Right? That's true. Well, maybe I can come up with some kind of Hillel, Hillel but that's, event. But uh, yeah, that's that's our world. Um at the De Leon household, uh, what's going on? Well, it's it's strange. I, I I was just in Manhattan yesterday, and here I am back in Agiland. So I went to I went to the conference for rabbis organized through the organization called Trua, and um, it's a rabbinic social justice organization. And uh, I got to participate in a a huge protest, a huge march march down Broadway um, 
from the Upper West Side down to the uh, Trump Hotel. And over 200 rabbis participated, along with a few hundred other uh, supporters. And ultimately, uh, 19 rabbis were arrested for blocking traffic in this planned civil disobedience event. I, unfortunately, was not among the the 19 who were arrested. I wasn't even given the option to be. They were pre-selected. And I'm a little, I'd say I'm a little annoyed by that. Pre-selected? Yeah, they were pre-prepared. They had briefings and knew their rights within the law, and they were trained for this civil disobedience, and I apparently don't have enough XP to get to the civil disobedience level of of rabbi. So I'm going to have to work on that. I'm going to have to do a few more quests. You learn as you go. Yeah, yeah. But it was amazing to participate in this uh, this huge protest, and uh, it was in the New York Times, and I think it it started to send a message. And I wanted to share something a colleague who was arrested shared on on her Facebook page publicly. So I feel okay sharing it. Uh, rabbi Rachel Timoner. Um, she wrote, I was told last night that 19 is the largest number of rabbis ever to be arrested in U.S. history. I don't know whether that's true, but I do know that we soon have to exceed that number. And not just rabbis. We're going to need to be prepared to put our bodies on the line to defend our democracy, to defend human decency and human dignity. We were born for this. Any privilege we have is for use in a moment like this. Our lives are meant to be instruments of moral courage. This is the time that requires moral courage. And that was uh, quite powerful. But you know, this is probably only the first of uh, perhaps many, many times when we'll need to to get arrested. And uh, you and I had lunch today with uh, our new new to the area imam colleague, and um, it was interesting hearing his perspective on issues like Islamophobia. And uh, you know, really made me yeah. think that. Yeah. That a lot more rabbis and hopefully a lot more Christian clergy are going to going to be arrested in in the weeks and months to come yeah. to support human rights. It was really good perspective, and I think that that ties back into one of the things that we mentioned last week in hopes of getting to this week, which is the theme of empathy. And what struck me among many things in our conversation with Imam Islam was uh, in talking about Islamophobia. He was sharing with us that um, this is something that uh, when imams are offering Friday messages, mm-hmm. what you know Christians would call their Sunday sermons, uh, that this is one of the topics that is addressed. And I did a double take on that because I'm going, huh, right. I, it makes sense to me that uh, Christians address Islamophobia as a mm-hmm. social injustice, but to hear you talk about it uh, offers me a great deal of perspective and it it i i i think i was talking about feeling like it's from a position of privilege mm-hmm. that you talk about that i talk about islamophobia but empathy requires that i take a look at so how do my muslim neighbors um view what it is that what we talk about as islamophobia right. how does this affect them how do they talk about this mm-hmm. in their own community of faith and how is this going to shape my understanding of fear of Muslims? Right. Um, so this was a this was a peculiar exercise. So in getting back to the theme of empathy, mm-hmm. I thought we could unpack that a little bit from yeah. Judaism and from Christianity. And uh, one of the things that, well, this the theme of it for me uh, for for Christi- from Christianity is about moving into the neighborhood. And Mm. this is what I mean. So from a theological standpoint, 
a Christian notion of empathy is framed in God made flesh, mm-hmm. the word made flesh, as the gospel of John outlines, um, that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. But Eugene Peterson, who has rewritten uh, the Bible in more contemporary language, calls it, the word of God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Mm. Trying to really emphasize that this means God taking on the experience of humanity so Mm -hmm. that we have that much more of an appreciation of God experiences what we experience. God knows what it is that we go through. And... I know that we start to split hairs over this doctrinal notion of Jesus being 100% human and 100% divine based on the Council of Nicaea and all this kind of stuff. But no matter where you come out um, on that doctrine, Mm -hmm. for me, the underlying point of it is in the Hebrew scriptures of Psalm 46, where it says, God is our refuge and strength, a Mm -hmm. very present help in trouble. Right. Empathy has to do with being 100% present, I feel. And that means letting down your guard to empathize, right? Mm -hmm. So. Oh, that's beautiful. Just an initial take. Yeah. So when I was thinking about uh, empathy, um, a story that uh, my teacher, Rabbi Arya Cohen, who's the first rabbi who I've known personally who's gotten arrested, he was arrested in a uh, Civil Disobedience Act. I, I believe he was supporting hotel workers in Los Angeles while I was in seminary, and uh, I was I was in awe by that. And uh, I did wonder when the day would come for me. Um, so he he has a book called Justice in the City, which he used to teach a course for us on social justice and Jewish tradition. And uh, I mentioned the Talmud before, and I'll mention it again because it's our vast collection of, of oral law codified around the year five hundred, and. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud tells the story of a righteous person uh, who got to speak with the prophet Elijah on a regular basis. Elijah, in the Jewish tradition, shows up in a variety of places. He's the forebringer of the Messiah. Uh, when the Messiah comes, uh, Elijah will be the one to announce the Messiah. Um, so this righteous person had the opportunity. He was righteous enough to, to have an audience with Elijah on a regular basis. But then the man constructed a, a gatehouse. And after that, Elijah no longer spoke with the man. He didn't, didn't visit with, with him at all. And uh, our tradition teaches that it was because the man could no longer hear the cries of the poor and could no longer help those in need because he'd secluded himself in this individual gated community, blocking out the rest of the world. And so uh, Rabbi Cohen uh, taught that we need, to see, we need to see the people who live on our street, who live in our neighborhood, who stock the shelves of our supermarket, who bag our groceries, and who grow and pick our food. We need to, like you say, to, to be present in order to gain the empathy, to realize what's going on in the world. And I feel like there are people in our country who, who aren't seeing that from the other side, who aren't seeing what's going on out in the streets for real Americans. Sure, sure. And that very present... Uh help in times of trouble, as you're saying, being 100% present, being actively present, right. has to do with community mm-hmm. rather than uh, closing oneself right. off. And so this, this one other scripture that I wanted to share, uh, it's um, from, from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it talks about, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. And reason why I bring that up is because 
even in an in an individualized society, mm-hmm. we can look at empathy as some personal virtue, as I myself need to understand the experience of my neighbor. Right. But the irony of that is that you you cut off community from that very from from the from that thinking uh, initially of I've got this figured out. Mm-hmm. Empathy requires community. Right. Being present requires community. Knowing who it is that you like you're saying bags your groceries and right. everything like that. And we've really walled ourselves off. We have our individual Facebook and Twitter timelines where we get our news from. We have our news channels where we get our news from. And so we've, we've walled ourselves off. Yes. And we need, to, we need to communicate. We need to sit down with each other. And we need to build bridges and build relationships. Um, you know, a book that I've been intending to read for decades is the book Bowling Alone. And I understand the concept that um, – you know, it, back a few decades ago, people used to form bowling leagues and they would get to know neighbors and people just used to do things outside yeah. the home. And then we had development of suburban television and everything else that's brought us to this day where we're so individualistic. And now we even, we don't listen to Walter Cronkite anymore collectively. We, we get our news from exactly where we want to get our news. And it's changed us as a society so much for the worse. Yep. Gone are the days of Johnny Carson, right? Exactly. No more of that. There's no communal collective experience. Yeah. There's no where were you on this day or where. Yeah, and, and which, which is the urgency, again, of community. And this is where um, I struggle with, with this notion of spiritual but not religious. Right. That, that's a really big buzz phrase and the opposite is often true in the Jewish community religious but not spiritual (laughs) it's true (laughs) good to know good to learn but and by and large I kind of have taken this approach of well you know live and let live that's fine Mm -hmm. if you're spiritual but not religious but I I get more of this urgent sense of but you need community right uh to be able to live out your spirituality, to be able to understand this theme of empathy, you've got to have community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't typically take that kind of line in the sand stance, but with this, I'm I'm getting, I find that I'm getting more and more insistent on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in in Judaism, communities so vital. Um, again, the the Talmud teaches that you're. You're not allowed to move to a community where there exists no Jewish school, where there exists no kosher slaughter. Um, you have to have some basics in your community. You have to have someone who can perform a circumcision on your son. And um, and we require a, a, a quorum, a prayer quorum of 10 people to do most holy things within within Judaism, to to say most most some of the prayer service, to, to bury people, to have a wedding. It requires ten adults, and uh, so you have to you have to live within a community that can do that. And that's one of the challenges here is that you know, we we have such a small Jewish community uh, that even when there's life cycle event, it's it's challenging to get to get those people together to get enough Jews together to to do something like that. Right, and it's in dialogue that we come to understand each other's experiences to to know where is the doctor who can perform a circumcision? Right. And it, I, I think of um, Lillian Daniel. She's a United Church of Christ pastor, um, 
wrote a book about our experience as clergy because mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's often a, a lonely and misunderstood gig. Right. But she shares this story. I'll trying to remember the specifics, but it was about a new member Sunday. They were receiving new members mm-hmm. into their congregation. And she was sharing with their congregation how um, her son had recently been uh, diagnosed as diabetic and that she was having a very difficult time being able to give him um, insulin shots Mm -hmm. and that she couldn't bring herself to do it, basically. And one of the incoming members came to her later and said, uh, who she hadn't had the opportunity to get to know yet, really, and said... I'm so glad you shared this with me. I'm a healthcare professional, mm. and I'm gonna um, uh, I'm gonna walk you through this. Right. I just want to let you know that I'm here in the event of an emergency, and that wouldn't have happened if in community she hadn't been given the opportunity to share right. her story and him responding with where he's coming from vocationally. Uh, it, it just it community makes for those connections to be able to happen. Right. It really always comes down to those individual relationships. Um, and right, and it has to be it, it has to be active. This right. so getting back to our theme of empathy, it has to be something that's actively sought after in community so often. Uh, so, something else that I wanted to bring up in light of recent yeah. um, stuff in the news and legislation in our state. So I came across the scripture from the book of Galatians in the sixth chapter that says, bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Um, the, the law of Christ, the ultimate mandate of Christ, mm-hmm. the new command that Christ gives us, as he says, is love God fully and love your neighbor as yourself. Right. The actual, the, the actual new command I give you is that you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Mm-hmm. But what hangs on all the law and the prophets is love God fully, love your neighbor as yourself. If this is the law of Christ, this active love of God and neighbor as self, um, and that gets acted out then in bearing one another's burdens, then I think about uh, where empathy could come into play here. When it comes to um, Senate Bill Six, SB Six mm-hmm. in our uh, in our state, which is this you know infamous bathroom bill, right? And tomorrow uh, we'll, we'll talk about this at the end of the podcast today. But tomorrow there's going to be this press conference where faith leaders are called to get together and you know uh, make a stance against this bathroom bill, right? And the urgency of it is that this is not bearing one another's burdens if mm-hmm. this were to pass. That's an articulation of, I don't care about your experience. Uh, specifically, our transgender neighbor, our gender nonconforming neighbor, mm-hmm. it says, I don't care about the burden that you have. Right. As I've heard from my uh, some transgender uh uh, actually, I heard it first from a transgender author and later from some friends that, that their greatest complaint is uh, le- religiously is let my people pee, right? <laughs> and so it's not, it's not respecting the burdens there, but additionally, I think of other examples like um, if someone is a caregiver for someone with disabilities who needs help uh, in going to the bathroom yeah. and the caregiver is of the opposite gender, this bathroom bill would – Prohibit yeah. that. I think there's actually exceptions for those situations. Oh, okay. what I understand. And parents and um, janitors as well. So one line of 
thought was, well, anyone could dress up like a janitor and then just go into the restroom illicitly if they wanted to, right? Problem um, solved. But uh, I think there's also an event that the lieutenant governor is planning, a breakfast for faith leaders that uh, I saw an invitation for, and it's not something I'm interested in going to. But um, obviously these are people who are going to be supporting the bill. And uh, But I noticed on the information is you have to be an employee of a church. And there was no option for synagogues or mosques or any other houses of worship. It says specifically to go to this, this faith leader breakfast that the lieutenant governor is putting on in support of the bathroom bill. It's church related. That's interesting. And that was not that I would want to go, but upsetting. So, But you're just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just putting it out there. So, Curious. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for bringing that up, man. I had hmm. no idea about that. I hadn't gotten my invitation yet. <laughs> well, I'm still looking for it. I guess. To Lieutenant Governor. Yeah. So, well, so, so, are you going to this? And what's what's the plan? Um, uh, now I'm curious. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah, I'm on the fence now. Um, I, I, my plan is to go. Yes. Okay. I plan to go. Uh, but the reason why I say I'm on the fence is because of what's happening on campus. Right. So you, you t- yeah, so, tell us about that. So to the best of my knowledge, on Thursday we have uh, two protests going on, uh, one being put on by an academic group uh, against the executive order that's inviting faculty and others uh, in the academic plaza, and then another uh, TAMU anti-racism group that is kind of culminating a week of activity and protest. I wasn't here didn't get to participate in anything. Yeah, but they're also doing a protest. And so um, so it looks like two events on campus tomorrow, and I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about going. I normally teach Torah every week on Thursday at, at the time of the protests, uh, but I'm canceling it this week because as with, as with the march uh, that I participated in and the executive director of Trua herself said, Torah is not just in the Beit Midrash, the house of study. It needs to be out in public. And when I march, I am proud to wear my my talis, my prayer shawl, to identify myself as a rabbi, as a Jewish leader. And uh, marching and being out there tomorrow is also Torah, is also teaching, is also learning, and it is it is what Jews do. Um, it's like you were saying about uh, Heschel uh, praying with his yeah, feet. Yeah, yeah. Ra- Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, he went to Selma to march with Martin Luther King. And there's a famous iconic picture of them marching together. And uh, he was a, a professor at uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, the counterpart institution to my seminary. And uh, someone asked him, said, Rabbi Heschel, you know, when you were in Selma, did you have time to pray? And he said, I, I prayed with my feet. And that's what that's what I've been doing a lot of lately. And uh, I'm just frustrated that my Fitbit didn't capture the entire <laughs> two-hour march in New York because it went slow, slowly. We, we, we never stopped for stoplights. We just kept walking. And we had a police escort the entire time. It was well-organized, well-planned. It was a beautiful example of how a march should go and, and go right. We had monitors who were wearing pink armbands and they were blocking traffic as we walked by. That was up to us. It wasn't the police department's job to do that. These volunteer monitors who were trained and ready to go blocked the traffic and then there were volunteer lawyers on hand. They were wearing green hats, lime green hats. And uh, it was just 
so well executed, and uh, I learned a lot from that march. And of course, the the arrests themselves were were pre-planned uh, with the cooperation of the New York Police Department, and uh, the 19 rabbis who were arrested were taken away in a in a paddy wagon and booked at the 33rd precinct and uh, released a few hours later. And uh, it was it was it was quite quite an experience. We need all of our protests to be color coded. We'll, we'll, well, we'll start working towards that now that we know. Now that I've been to this this protest, we can we can get there. We can get the lawyers in the lime green hats. Something about in talking about empathy requiring community. Another thing to that um, I feel is important about it is not over spiritualizing it, mm-hmm. not not treating it as just some uh, cliched spiritual discipline that, oh, you know, I can just try to understand my neighbor's experience better if I just read about them right. or hear about them. It, it it gets back to that intentionality. So something else that I wanted to share was in looking at empathy is what uh, Henry Nouwen calls poverty of heart. And Henry Nouwen is this uh, Catholic theologian who mm-hmm. died not too long ago, but he was a prolific writer And um, this is one of the things that he shares about um, empathy. He says, when we are willing to detach ourselves from making our own limited experience the criterion for our approach to others, we may be able to see that life is greater than our life, history is greater than our history, experience greater than our experience, and God greater than our God. That is the poverty of heart that makes a good host. With poverty of heart, we can receive the experiences of others as a gift to us. Their histories can creatively connect with ours. Their lives give new meaning to ours. And their God speaks to ours in mutual revelation. Hmm. It just it seems to me that uh, this kind of poverty of heart is what we're lacking so much right. of. There's more of a pride of heart than anything else. Right. That I'm right. That <laughs> yes. That's right. And... Mm-hmm. I won't have it any other way. Exactly. Yeah. More more of a territorial approach to anything else. I mean, what we talked about last week with the with the, the Muslim ban, mm-hmm. I, there's no ounce of poverty of heart in there, at least based on what Nowen's talking about. Right. So yeah. um, one of the things that I was going to share with you about the last few days, the youth group at our church did this thing called the Super Bowl of Caring, and it's actually mm-hmm. a national um, charitable organization where they encourage uh, they encourage you to in your local community to give money and food items to your soup kitchen to mm-hmm. your food bank and um, so the money and donations don't go to Super Bowl caring they go to in our case the Brazos church pantry right so the group did a great job it was fantastic but the reason why I bring it up is because the way they went about doing their Super Bowl of caring is they did a lock-in where for the entire time they were together, they fasted. Hmm. Some of them for as little as 20 hours, some of them as many as 26, but it was so that they could um, try to experience, if even a little, of the mm-hmm. hunger pangs right. that people who deal with hunger on a daily basis in our yeah. community go through. Um, and they also went to... Um, the grocery store on a limited budget where I gave them scenarios to say, mm-hmm. this is your situation. Right. You have $50. Yeah. 
and you need to feed your family of three in this case, four in that case, four mm-hmm. a week. Right. Go get as much as you possibly can for three meals a day. Yeah, I love those types of like food stamp challenges where you have to you have to try to spend a certain amount each day. It's yeah, so yeah. powerful. Exactly, and so I, I think it. Um, they're still processing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of difficult to process that one on an empty stomach and right. a zombie brain. But um, I could see how their uh, their gears were turning. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the textual sources that I brought today, and I'm so excited that you brought this up and I didn't know you were going to, is Isaiah 58. Um, and verses 5 through 7 are read on Yom Kippur itself, on a day when we're mandated to fast for 25 hours. And... Um, Isaiah rebukes the fast itself, but yet we bring this into the Yom Kippur liturgy and we, we study this every, every Yom Kippur, where Isaiah writes, Is such the fast I desire, a day for men to starve their bodies? Is it bowing the head like a bulrush and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Do you call that a fast, a day when the Lord is favorable? No, this is the fast I desire, to unlock, unlock fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break off every yoke. It is to share your bread with the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home when you see the naked to clothe him and to not ignore your own kin. And so while we're so pious and it's nearing the end of Yom Kippur, we have to rebuke ourselves and say, it's not just about performing, and this is where the religious and not spiritual comes in, when we observe the commandments, when we observe the mitzvot, um, keep kosher and keep the Sabbath, but yet the Torah admonishes us 36 times more than any other commandment to love the neighbor as yourself, uh, often with the example because you two are strangers in the land of Egypt, we know what it's like to be a stranger as Jews, as Israelites. And um, it's it's in there. It's in there three dozen times. And yet that's often the most forgot about commandment. There's a guy in my congregation that would call this a God thing mm-hmm. because we actually read that scripture on Sunday, hmm. which was not a part of the Super Bowl of caring. It was all just, just complete your... coincidence. It wow. was uh, in the lectionary for Sunday, huh. and we read that one. So as that was being read, yeah. what was going through my mind, as you're getting at, was that's what these kids were doing, whether they mm-hmm. knew it up front or not. Right. Anyway. Well, so then uh, what are you going to be doing then tomorrow if uh, if I go to Austin – yeah, I, I wish I was going to Austin. I'm, I'm definitely going to campus. Um, I'm not going to be doing Torah Thursday. I'm marching, praying with my feet, going on to campus, going to both these marches, um, and uh, I'll be wearing my talus. I have to think of a new sign. As you can see, I've got my accumulation of of uh, foam core. I'm thinking about investing in <laughs> foam core companies. I think uh, it's going to be a big booming industry in the United States over the next few years. And uh, I'll be out there. I was trying to find some information about the one that you're going to be going to. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see. Uh, it's it's in solidarity with Academics United. Uh, Academics United rallies right. um, that the academics of Texas A&M are going to be gathering at Sol Ross Plaza for this um, to show support for citizens and refugees of the seven countries affected by the latest executive order. Mm-hmm. And in, in more of the explanation of it, what, what, uh, strikes me in light of, uh, conversations that, I've, we've been having over this past week is these academics, right. uh, many of them coming from other countries, exactly. not being able to go home, right. 
because of this, because even though there's a, a, a day limit on this ban, mm-hmm. there's really no, we really have no idea about how long this is going to last and what the effects of it are going exactly. to be. And especially at Texas A&M, where Texas A&M has more students than any other university who mm-hmm. are affected by this ban. And as I mentioned last week, I, I, I don't feel like the university statements have been strong enough uh, in support of the students, unfortunately. Mm. And um, I, I think this protest on Thursday will will hopefully send a message. That was one of the things that we were able to talk with the imam about today was uh, how this is affecting his mm-hmm. community. Right. And so there's there's trepidation. Yeah. But it's it's one thing to read about the experiences of people who are affected by this. It's what, 134 million mm-hmm. are allegedly affected by mm-hmm. the executive order mm-hmm. that we know of. This is all on paper stuff, right? right? But it's another thing entirely to hear the stories of people in our community who are affected by this ban, where we don't know exactly when it's going to end and what all is going to come of it. Right. So good on you. This is what you're going to be doing tomorrow That's awesome alongside... 51 other universities and counting. Yeah, are going yeah to be I'm sure there'll be many more by then. Yeah, I just heard about it today. Yeah. And then the uh, Tamu anti-racism protest is planned as part of a whole week. Uh, beginning, I think tomorrow is the anniversary of that racist incident that happened last year. Or one of the days this week. And that's why they've planned all these things this week is because of that, um, the, the, the bus of Dallas students uh, who were Rachel race racial epithets were yelled at right, them. Right, right. Uh, that was a year ago Seems this like week. It was last week, right. I know. So, um, and it doesn't feel like much has changed on campus in terms of policy and announcements. And you know, their last protest was this no more emails protest, which really resonated with me because you know, the university does just keep, seem to keep sending out emails. And um, from my perspective, I haven't seen much action. So maybe not a lot has changed in terms of policy and such, but don't you think that a lot is changing in a short amount of time? Yeah, in the community. Yeah. yeah maybe right. not officially at the administration level. Um, for Martin Luther King Day, the provost or president of the University of Wisconsin sent out this email to the community on Martin Luther King Day saying, here's what we've been doing lately to improve diversity issues. And I, I tweeted about it. I wished our administration at Texas A&M had done something similar. Saying, here's an update. Here's what's going on in honor of Martin Luther King Day. Here's where we're, where we're at and where we're headed. Okay. Well, we'll have a lot to share then, hopefully, about the experiences of tomorrow. Seems like every week is uh, it seems like every week. a lot going on. And well, I'm not traveling again for another uh, six weeks. So. And another thing that maybe we could get into next time, just from a personal level that I was thinking about sharing yeah. today, was just how um, I... I it, I know that you feel similar. Feel similarly. I'm just tired, and I don't get to see mm. uh, spend as much time with my family as right. I would like because of the fact that these every day is, is something new. Every day is something new. Yeah. Every day is something new with this. Um, and our, even just to keep up on the news ju- of what's going sure, on sure. dynamically in, the, in this country, and uh, read what I what I need to read to feel educated and informed, and it, it's it's an impossible task. It is. It is. And I didn't even mention my trip yesterday to the National September 11th Museum and Memorial. So maybe it's something we'll talk about next time. That'll be fantastic. Well, I'll look forward to it. And so uh, safe travels uh, onto campus for you and uh, 
And to Austin for you. Thank you. And we'll look forward to having another conversation next week. So thanks, good people, for listening to this second episode of our podcast. That is a good work in progress. We're really enjoying this time together. And uh, I really appreciate you listening in. So we'll keep building up this uh, community together. And we'll see where it takes us with all the hope in the world. So take care, everybody. Peace. And we, uh, we invite your feedback. Let us know what you think. Shalom, y'all. <laughs>